0: You guys sound great, so great job just participating and engaging with our worship team, and again our goal every weekend, we just want to be preoccupied with Jesus, and so thank you for actively doing that. For those of you out on the pavilion, welcome to you again today, and for those of you watching online. If you're a guest with us today, especially want to say a welcome to you. Thanks for joining us and making this part of your weekend with us. My name is Todd Arnett, I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity Church, you join us, we're in week two of a brand new series, you just saw kind of a video giving a little bit of substance to it, of of as Jesus is revealing himself as this long awaited Messiah, the song we just sang captured it so well, that was at one point the response of the crowds, should have been the response all the way through, should be our response today, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's our salvation, our victor. But we're going to see that as Jesus is revealing himself in the gospel of John, that many are doing anything but responding with that faith, responding with that belief. Instead, they're responding with more and more confusion. They're responding with more and more antagonism. And even to the point, like we read last week, the Pharisees looked for a way to kill him. So this is the tension we're going to see a lot in the next five chapters of the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible today, if you want to make your way there, John chapter 5 is where we're going to be. If you uh, have our app, and that's a download on your phone or your tablet, if you want to open that up and go to resources, that'll get you to our sermon notes today. You can track with us. For those of you in home groups, that's probably what you're talking about midweek, so that'll help you be prepared for that as well. Well, let me give you a couple things as you're finding your way there this morning. We've been talking about, uh, for a a while, we took a church-wide survey back in the month of March, and now we have next week kind of the assessment of that survey. Uh, A person that's become a friend of mine, Nancy Moore, is gonna be here in person to share what that assessment is and what the results from that survey are about and how we move forward. That's really gonna be a a part of that time together. So we'd love for you to join us. Let me give you a little bit of a change of what I said last week. We did the math and we kind of realized that it's probably better especially to make it available online to do that event in here. So next Sunday, two o'clock, it's gonna be in this building We'll do the same that we normally do for worship services. We'll ask you to wear a mask indoors. We'll also, though, stream it out to the pavilion, and we'll stream it out online. So just the same format that we use on Sunday for worship services, we'll make this meeting available all three ways as well. So we'd love for you to join us 2 o'clock next Sunday, and I think that's all I need to tell you about that, but we'd love for you to be a part of that and hear a little bit of the results of the survey that you took. Secondly, one thing that we've realized, it's been great, as we have been coming back on campus, I believe this is week six, our numbers on the weekends just get bigger every weekend, which is exciting and and great, but with that comes needs, and one of those needs, especially is our kids programming. We are bringing more and more kids on Sundays, which is awesome, there's only like yay God about that. But our worker number has not grown consistently with that. So here's what I'm asking you to do next Sunday and on the following Sunday, the 25th and the 2nd. We're going to have what we've done at Trinity many times, at like a ministry fair, opportunities for you to get involved in some areas of need. This time we're going to limit that to really only kind of four kind of departments that all need help in this season as we're just kind of gaining traction on the, on the weekends again, it all kind of makes sense. We were not on campus for a long time, then we were on campus out on the lawn, but in a very limited way. And now that we're kind of all kind of spreading out around the campus, we just need more hands. So we'll have this ministry fair. It'll be for children's ministries. It'll be for our productions teams, the people that are making sound and light and all those good things happen right now. It'll be for um, our hospitality teams. We just need friendly people who'd welcome those and usher here in the worship center. And also for our student ministries, uh, small group leaders, and that's more of a midweek thing. So next Sunday and the following Sunday, if you just walk out, check out what's kind of available out there. If you've served in some of these areas before and you're like, hey, I didn't know they needed help. I'd love to join, jump back in. That's great. If you've never served in these areas before, but you're like, you know what? I'd be willing to do that. I'd be willing to step in. The way our services work now, too, with a 9 o'clock and 11, it's a great way to serve at one and attend another. So just want to plant that seed next Sunday. That'll be available for you, and I'd love for you to check that out. We're going to dive in today. We're going to look at the last part of John chapter 5, and we're going to pick it up mid, mid-conversation to where we left off last Sunday. And what we see is Jesus having a conversation with the religious leaders of the day. They um, have moved from being confused about who he is to now being angry, and even to the point of wanting to kill him. And so this is high, high tension, high conflict is what's going on, and we'll pick that up midway. What we're going to see today is we're going to see Jesus not defending himself, but actually saying, I have three witnesses That actually, even if you don't believe what I say, don't believe what I do, at least listen to these that would testify on my behalf, almost like a court hearing a little bit, and we'll look at who those witnesses are, and what we'll see is Jesus is going to make it infinitely clear the very word of God that you literally study day and night speaks of me all throughout it, and yet you are completely missing it. And the sad irony of that is going to be palpable in what we look at today. Here's our now what statement in your notes and on the screen. Believe the testimony of the Father communicated in his word that life is found in his son. Believe the testimony of the Father communicated in his word that life is found in his son. Number one in your notes, John's purpose was to identify Jesus as the Messiah. John's purpose was to identify Jesus as Messiah. It can be confusing. This is the gospel of John, and then there's John the baptizer, and that's who we're looking at today in this sense, John the Baptist. John chapter 5, verse 31. Jesus speaking, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it, that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. So we pick it up, and Jesus is continuing this conversation. It's heated. There's a lot of tension in the conversation, and we pick it up where we left off last week, and Jesus begins with this idea, I know you're not listening to me. I know you don't believe what I'm saying, but there are some others that are saying the same thing I am that you should also listen to. And one of those he identifies is John the Baptist. And we've read from the very beginning, we back all the way up in this gospel, John chapter one was beginning a whole lot about John the baptizer and his ministry and what he was doing. And and what was fascinating about his ministry, we talked about it early on, was that he was calling the people of Israel, calling Jewish people to come and to be baptized. Now, for us, we kind of live post-cross, post-empty tomb in the church age, and we understand what baptism means for us. We just had a baptism service a couple weeks ago. It was powerful to hear people's stories, their testimonies, and then get in these waters. But, but then, on the other side, the earlier side of the cross, baptism was really reserved for one group of people. And that was people who were not Jews, who wanted to be a part of the Jewish community. Not just socially, but religiously. They were what we call proselytes, those who wanted to come to, they wanted to turn from whatever ways they had followed before, and follow Yahweh. And and that was part of the the kind of, you'd almost say the ritual or the initiation of someone coming into this new Jewish community is they would be baptized. So what had the, the religious leaders' minds blown is that John is calling Jews to come get baptized. Nobody does that. Like, we are already in. We don't need that. We don't need an initiation for anything. And remember, John's words, John's call was, repent. Come out here, recognize that you have lived. Even though the law is something that is of the Jews, the law just demonstrates, as we'll see today, the law just demonstrates our sin. It doesn't make us righteous before God. And he calls him to repentance, and he also tells him, but there's great news, Messiah is among us. So this is the testimony that John has already given about Jesus, and we'll kind of unpack it a little bit today. The first thing I want you to see, though, this whole idea of witnesses or or those who would testify on Jesus' behalf, Jesus is leaning into their law, okay? Jesus is just bringing up with these religious leaders, again, day and night, studying the word of God, studying up until then, the first 39 books of your Bible, And pouring over it, Jesus is appealing to what they made much of, and that was simply this. That no one person could be either named guilty because of just one person's testimony. There had to be two or three others. Let me show you where this initially is found. It's in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. It's up on the screen. It says, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, this is powerful. You have to remember the law, as, as we're referring to it, had so many dynamics that weren't just vertical in terms of how we worship Yahweh, but it's how we treat one another. It was legal. It was a legal document. And so what it basically said in this part of Deuteronomy, Moses is kind of giving the second telling of the law to a new generation that's going to go into Canaan. And he tells them no one can ever be convicted for a crime because one person says so. And that's just good law, right? I don't like Pete. I go tell the guy in charge that Pete just did this horrific thing. It doesn't have to matter if it was true or not. I say so. Jewish law says that's not enough. More than one guy has to watch Pete do what you said he did. That's just good law. Logic, common sense, legal way to deal with one another. So Jesus, the, the, uh, Moses lays this down earlier in the old covenant, in the former covenant, lays it down as this is the way that it works. Now, Jesus is going to flip this. They are beginning to accuse Jesus of things. Jesus is saying, you don't have witnesses that you can count that are going to come against me. But on the proactive side, I have witnesses that would speak of my um, uh, innocence, not my guilt. So Jesus is going to flip this. Look how this keeps getting used even throughout the New Testament. When Jesus is talking about conflict or sin, even within the church, Matthew 18, 16, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter, and there's a quote, every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So again, this idea of it's never, in terms of guilt, it's never just gonna be because one person says so, it should be something demonstrative, something that other people could also testify to. Paul says the same thing to his pastor protege, Timothy. Look how he puts it, 1 Timothy 5.19. Do not entertain, do not let just sit in front of you an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. So again, Even in our context for a local church, we have elected elders in our congregation. If there is something that they have done wrong, Paul is telling Timothy, don't receive that just because Pete tells you so. And by the way, if you're Pete here today, I am so sorry. (laughs) Pete is my guy. If you're around me enough, you'll hear that I often talk about Pete. He's just my guy, I use all the time. So I really apologize because you're like, man, you're always talking bad about me, Todd. (laughs) I really do, I really apologize. But, but what Paul is telling Timothy, don't just receive that because one person says so. It needs to be witnessed. So these are all accounts of guilt. Two or three have to testify that this is the case. And even the author of Hebrews, he makes a powerful statement. Look what he says. Hebrews chapter, 20, chapter 10, 28 and 29. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Author of Hebrews is saying that's how law was done in the former covenant. You could do something egregious enough to call for your death, the death penalty, based on what two or three people say. Look what he goes on to say. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? meaning the testimony of Jesus and his death on the cross speaks volumes well beyond what two or three people could say in a former covenant that they'd be held accountable for, how much more are we accountable because of the cross of Christ. So this is this concept begins in deuteronomy and really bleeds all the way in through the old into the new testament as well and jesus is using this dynamic to say you're trying to surround yourself with people who would call me guilty of something i'm telling you there's people speaking in my defense and the first one is john the baptizer one that they had connected with long ago we saw back in john chapter one that the religious leaders sent a delegation They sent a group of religious leaders to talk to John to ask him these very questions we talked about earlier today. What are you doing? This is so bizarre. And John told them then, clearly he was not the Messiah. I am not him. I'm making that uber clear. But I am telling you, I'm the one announcing that he's coming. That's my role, the forerunner kind of role. And identify Jesus as Messiah he did. Back earlier in John chapter one, verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Later on in verse 34, I have seen and I testify. There's that same language, legal language. Excuse me, language. I testify that this is God's chosen one. So the point is, John did his job well. He came and prepared the way. He got people's hearts stirred and ready to think, hey, if if he's calling me to repent, if he's telling me that Messiah, we've waited literally for generations for God's long-expected Messiah. You're telling me he's here among us now? I'm getting ready. And that's what the people, that's what the response was at that time. And John's saying super clear, it's not me, but I'm gonna point him out to you and then point him out he does. He does. Jesus talks about their fickle faith, though, about John. You saw that last phrase in what we read. For a time, you enjoyed his light, like a lantern for a time. And I brought my camping lantern, I gotta be honest, it's been a while since I pulled out the camping lantern for the Arnett family. We've chosen hotels a little bit more recently. But there was a day when we would use this faithfully, uh, probably about five or six summers in a row, and and therefore I had to get new batteries in it today, right? Because that wasn't gonna work. But imagine, maybe this is the way that Jesus is meaning this. Imagine that you're not. When we go camping, my family, we camp down at the beach, and it's in a really nice campground. And it's, it's, not, it's camping, but it's not. Imagine that you're out in the woods, and there's no light. The only thing that lights up the sky is stars at night, which can be magnificent and beautiful, but you're, it's pitch black. And imagine that in the night you hear a rustling, and, and you realize I could just sit here kind of like an ostrich and put my head in the sand, or I could go deal. I probably need to deal. And, And you're not about, though, to walk out of your tent and just go inspect in the dark. So you grab the handy lantern that you put at your feet when you went to bed, and you turn it on, and as you walk out into the dark, you're grateful that the lantern is giving you light. You're grateful that it's giving a luminescence to what you need to see, at least where to walk. But then as you shine the light, and you kind of, you know, you're shaking a little bit as you do, you realize that a bear has gotten into all of your food, and it is just pilfered. It is gone. And you realize that now all of a sudden, what was great about the light is that it provided illumination for you to see. Now when you see what you don't want to see, you get frustrated with the light. Darn light, you know, and get all mad. Well, the reality is the light had nothing to do with it. The light just put the emphasis on something you could see and when you didn't like what you saw, you got frustrated with the light. I think that's what Jesus is talking about related to the religious leaders and their relationship with John. John brought up some amazing things but they didn't like what he was saying and at some point wanted to turn off his light. Look in your notes. One thing that we've noticed throughout this gospel account is that John's life and purpose then is ours today. We've made a lot of parallels and I think it's really accurate. To be convinced ourselves that Jesus is the Messiah and to make him known as such through our influence with others. That was John's purpose 2,000 years ago. I believe that's our purpose today. To be convinced in our own mind, in our own soul, that Jesus is the Messiah and to make him known through the layers of influence that we have in our worlds. That's powerful, and to keep seeing ourselves through that lens, we can identify with John the Baptist even though his unique calling was very specific to him, but his purpose was more general. And then we see it in the disciples too, that's what we're called to be like. Number two in your notes today, you can study the Bible and still miss the point. This next part of this passage is really powerful today. You can study the Bible and still miss the point. John chapter five, verse 36. I have testimony weightier than that of John. So he starts with John. You remember this guy, John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, they testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. Look at this next phrase. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. You've missed it, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So Jesus doesn't stop in just identifying one witness. This one they'd be very familiar with, John the Baptizer. But in a way, he identifies two more In a way, he identifies two more. And the first one is is look at the things that I am able to do supernaturally. Look at these miracles. John, the gospel writer, will use the phrase signs. Look at these signs. They have to mean something. But beyond the signs, look at the one who gives me the power to do them, the direction to do them, and that is the Father. So the signs I'm doing and the testimony, the witness of the Father, they should mean something. They... they, uh, Testify on my behalf. Now, he's gonna say this numerous times, not only in the Gospel of John, but in other Gospels. He's gonna push, and and we we read a quote a few weeks ago that was really poignant, and it basically said, Jesus' miracles, they prove to do much more than the supernatural action in the moment for maybe someone who was healed, or like we'll see next week, a crowd that was fed. It proves to do much more than just that thing in the moment. What it proves is, is it creates this question that someone, every person has to deal with at some level. If this didn't happen, if, if this miracle that I did didn't come from the power of God, then where does it come from? Because if the miracle can't be rationalized away, if the supernatural action, I'm eating what was a boy's lunch and I'm sitting with thousands of other people Okay, if, if there's something about this reality I cannot reject that has happened, then there has to be some kind of, of, of reason for it. Where does this come from? How is Jesus able to do it? And Jesus will say this again and again, if it doesn't come from the Father, then tell me who does it come from? Poignant in the Gospel of Matthew that the religious leaders understand the dilemma, and they even go to the point of saying, from Satan himself. Man, talk about missing, missing what is right in front of you. And it shows more than, it's not an intellectual miss, it's a heart issue. I have to blame it on something, and it can't be God, so it must be. So this is the dilemma, and this is what Jesus is bringing up. And, and the John the Gospel writer has actually been saying this all along, that these signs demand a response. We've said kind of the theme verse of the whole gospel of John is found in chapter 20, verse 31. These things, and it's in the context, it's not about Jesus' teachings. It's about in the context of miracles. There are so many miracles, I couldn't write them all down. A, a, A library couldn't contain them. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. So these signs are definitely meant for us to lean into, for the people in the first century to lean into and say, he is God. Because God has given him the power to do these amazing things that we can't account for any other way. Jesus goes further though than the signs in this passage and he asserts that again, he has this unique son of God, father, he is my father, this unique privilege relationship with the Father, when he keeps calling him, keeps responding, you'll note, nobody in the Old Testament, there's a couple times that David in the Psalms will say he'll talk about God as Father, but in those it's always a messianic Psalm. So it's always this connection back to Jesus. And so Jesus continues to call Yahweh, they're very clear in who he's talking about, but he calls him his Father. And that unique relationship just continues to get under their skin. And what Jesus does is he calls them out very clearly on being so close to the word of God and yet missing the fact, like John says, that the very word is standing right in front of them. When things come in sets of threes in the Bible, it's really good to pay attention. There's something about when things are coupled in threes, there's just something of, of an a exclamation that's being made. And Jesus gives... Um, a triple indictment about these religious leaders with these three phrases. He says, you've never heard his voice. Religious leaders who worship Yahweh, they've never heard his voice. Your ears have been blind, or uh, deaf, I'm sorry, ears are weird to be blind. Ears have been deaf to what he's been saying. You've never seen his form. Your eyes have been blinded to what God is doing right in front of you nor does his word dwell in you. God has written words, you've even literally memorized them, but they don't abide, they don't sit. They don't stay as a place of leadership and authority in your life. And he goes on and he says, what's the evidence? Like, how do I know these things are true of you? For you do not believe the one he sent. I'm the one that's been written about all throughout your law, all throughout your former covenant. I'm standing in front of you and you're rejecting me. It shows that you have not been paying attention. It shows that though you study much, you're learning nothing. Jesus is stating this because they've never responded to the revelation that Yahweh has already given them consistent with that lack of response they're not responding to the greatest revelation that Yahweh ever gave of who he was in the son standing right in front of him and John said this was going to happen John chapter 1 verse 10 he being Jesus he was in the world and though the world was made through him the world did not recognize him he came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him this has much to say about the accountability not just to the religious leaders, but to all of us, about when God makes himself known, when God reveals himself, what kind of accountability do we have for that? I love it, there are friends that I have that are serving Jesus all over the world, and some of them, especially with missions that are all about Bible translation. And I will sit down with them and we'll have conversations, they will literally, I remember one telling me one time, he's like, Todd, it was the craziest thing He had served in Papua New Guinea, and he came back to the States on a a national time of serving. He came back to the States, and he walked into a Christian bookstore, and he just wept. He's like, the people group I'm working with don't even have a written language. They don't even have then, of course, a written word of God if they don't even have a written language. He He had to go that far back. To literally write down their language so then he could interpret or translate the scriptures into their language. And he sees shelves of resources. Here's my point. Jesus makes this really clear related to the kind of leadership and the kind of direction that God gives us that we'll be accountable for it. Luke chapter 12, verse 47, the servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows this is a parable Jesus is telling but the one who does not know and does these things deserving a punishment will be beaten with few with lesser blows here's the point from everyone who has been given much much will be demanded and from the one who has been entrusted with much much more will be asked here's my point <clears throat> This idea of the way that God has revealed himself to us in America is amazing. The amazing amount of Bible study tools, the amazing amount of translations of the the Bible, the amazing amount of different media in which the Bible is available to us. And as Jesus is talking to religious leaders, as Jesus says later on in this parable, to whom much has been given, much will be required. Where there is great revelation, there is a great expectation. That we would live according to it. And and within that, what Jesus is challenging is far more than the fact that the Pharisees missed Messiah in the scriptures that talked about Messiah. He's challenging their whole form or their whole intent and purpose for studying the Bible in the first place. He's talking about accountability that has to be there because we say it ourselves, God's word is unlike any other book that has ever existed because it is breathed by God. So therefore, it has this great accountability that we have to it. And it's amazing that we can see this demonstrated well in other people. Here we are looking at the Pharisees today and going, oh man, those guys totally missed it. I'll never forget my first encounter with what I would call a deeply religious person who completely missed the point. I was a youth pastor working with high school and college-age students up in the Pacific Northwest. And in my little town in Oregon is actually a sister school of the University of Redlands called Linfield College. And I went and had, I was only there a few months, and I I made a lunch date to meet with the chaplain of the school. The school had a chaplain. So it's like, I'd love to get to meet you. I'm a new college pastor in town. Love to talk about ways we can maybe have some partnerships, et cetera. And I remember going to lunch with him. I remember, I mean, I haven't lived in Oregon for a long time, but I'll never forget even the the restaurant we sat in and where we sat. And here's this guy who'd been educated at an evangelical seminary. And as we were talking over the course of the lunch, I talked with someone who had never met Jesus. Completely blew my mind. Seminary trained, had been a chaplain in the military and then come and had become a chaplain at this local Christian college, and all he talked about was religion and never talked about Jesus. His role at this university, this college, was to provide religious services for students of a diverse background, and that's what he did. And he was religious as the day was long, but was so far from Jesus. You see, it's powerful when we get that kind of image and we are interacting with someone and we go, wow, I can't believe you're so close to it, and yet you've missed it. But I wanna say this, it's harder to see in ourselves. It's harder to see when we look in the mirror, When we ask the purpose or the the question, what is the purpose, what is the goal of when we study our Bibles? We have ministries at Trinity Church that are surrounded around this idea. Are you going to Bible study? We say that word. When you come on a weekend and at church, we have as a key part of the service a study in the Bible, We hope that you are in God's word throughout the week, not just on a Sunday, and that you are engaged in your own personal study of God's word. So, studying the word of God is a good thing. No one's saying any different, but we need to ask the question what am I after? Why am I doing this? Is the outcome that I would know better what rules I'm supposed to be keeping? Would the purpose be so that I can know how to defend my faith more with people who don't believe in Christ? Would the purpose be that I would have more knowledge of something I'm genuinely interested in? And I would say, first and foremost, it's none of those things. That's not why we do this. Weersby, author and commentator, writes this, it is unfortunate when our study of the Bible makes us arrogant and militant instead of humble and anxious to serve others, even those who disagree with us. The mark of true Bible study is not knowledge that puffs up, but love that builds up. That comes right from 1 Corinthians 8. Are we so involved in Bible study that we fail to see Jesus Christ in the Word? Does our knowledge of the Bible give us a big head or a burning heart? That is much more powerful when we stop talking about other people and start looking in the mirror. We have to ask ourselves some hard questions. God, why am I doing this? What am I after? What is my goal? The Pharisees had a goal and it was to understand the legal law and how to hold other people accountable to it, not so much themselves. We see that error really clearly. We have to look at ourselves and go, God, why am I even doing this? What am I trying to get out of your word? That's why the difficulty was there when the staff of Trinity Church, pastors and ministry directors, and then the elders supplementally, when we worked on our core value related to the word of God, Trinity's DNA, our core values are simply to demonstrate who our DNA is. What are we about? And obviously at Trinity Church, our DNA is centered around the word of God. But what we struggled with was, is it just because that's what we make much of and we talk about it and we look at it all the time, or is it supposed to do something in us? And that's why we came up with a core value that says this, the Bible is God's story given to transform you and to be the authority in your life. Two big ideas, not only is it from the word of God God himself, it is his story, but it is given to transform us, to change us, and it's given to be the authority, not the suggestions in my life, but it is the line under which I live. We've expanded this core value in an amplified way with the elders. Look at how it speaks, It, it communicates us so well. At Trinity, we provide many opportunities for people to understand and to be molded by God's character and nature as revealed in his word, the Bible, this is because we believe the Bible is unlike any other book ever written, uniquely inspired by God. We believe that it has the power to transform the way we think and act. We also believe that it has the ultimate authority over our lives, compelling us to ask the question, what does the Bible say about that and how do I respond? I love that amplified statement and that clarifies it so well. One of the other things I've told you about in some different settings is how much I love our own Bill Binell's book. This book, what I love about it, it basically walks through the different imperative verbs in Scripture. And it just keeps calling us. But what I want to show you more than anything today is the title. Because the title summarizes, I believe, what the whole purpose of God's word is for our individual lives. Pleasing God by knowing and doing his will. So understandably, I can't please God if I don't know what he expects of me. I can't please God if I don't know how I'm supposed to live. So knowing The will of God is absolutely critical, but it's not enough to just know things, knowing and doing, knowing and doing. That's what the purpose of God's word is. And as a result, if you've ever wondered, I wonder if I'm living a life pleasing God, I believe Bill's title demonstrates it. By knowing and doing God's will, you are pleasing him. That's how that happens. That's how that gets lived out. And I love, this is a verse that we're very familiar with, but it's so fitting today, James 1.22, do not merely listen to the word and watch. It can have a deceptive effect, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Finally today, number three, you will fail to please God if you make it your aim to please others. You will fail to please God if you make it your aim to please others. We're in John 5, verse 41. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Enter a fourth witness, Moses himself. We'll get to that in just a second. Jesus finishes this conversation with, again, a sequence of of just calling them out. You are missing the point. And you're missing the point for a powerful reason. He says that he himself does not seek or pursue praise from people. That this isn't what he's after is trying to please them or trying to to become popular. That's not Jesus' goal at all. But he says, but it's yours. And it's demonstrated in the fact that you are looking for, you are trying to receive and give praise and glory back and forth between each other. But you've missed the whole point that that begins and ends with God. As human beings, that's our goal, to make much of him, not of each other. And their lack of love for Yahweh has caused them to miss the long-expected Messiah that he has given them in their times. When Jesus says, you don't have the love of God in you, realize what he's saying, what every Jewish religious leader could quote back to you, what's the most important commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. What is Jesus saying? You have completely missed the point. Because if you loved him, you would love me. You would see that I came from him. Jesus then provides a corollary to show how this has happened. This idea of, again, wanting the praise of other people. Jesus says, I'm not about that, but that seems to be all that you're about. Think of it this way. We have some high school seniors at Trinity Church And right now in their classes, uh, as unique as the school year has been, some of them are in a government or an econ class the second semester. And in their government and econ class, what's interesting is that is a necessary class to graduate. No pass, no walk. Okay? That's how it goes. So it's a necessary class. So imagine I'm a high school senior in my government and econ class. I am deeply loved by all my classmates. Uh, Redlands District is going back in person tomorrow for some students. So imagine getting back in the classroom and and maybe it's been online on a screen and and just being amazingly loved by peers. Man, we love this person, he's so funny and, and love the way that they interact with us, love the way they're always cracking jokes, so great. Deeply loved by the class. Not doing the assignments and not pleasing the teacher. At the end of the semester, you got lots of friends, but you got no graduation. Who am I supposed to be impressing, pleasing, trying to do what they're asking me to do in my government econ class? That teacher. And without that, it's a fail. We can live the same way in our lives. God, we're making much of what other people think of us, but failing to consider what you think. And like I said earlier, it is really easy to see in other people. It is harder to see in the mirror. I was really convicted. I appreciate many of you were at our Good Friday service. We had a really powerful time. Bill and Chris did a great job, put the service together. And one of the elements that Bill had reached out to me earlier in the week and said, hey, I'd love to have a time of confession. That's cool. Let's do it. So we had cards in the chair backs. And we got to that point in the service, and um, we we're called to kind of take a card and and write something down. And the goal was that we were going to have that bring it up and it was going to get nailed to the cross. Very cool, symbolic reality. I don't mind sharing with you what I wrote on mine. It's not a secret. I just wrote things, and this is under the context of what I need to confess. God, I have cared for too long about what other people think of me, both their praise and their criticism, and less of what you do. And that it is such a, a slippery slope, right, to start down. And it is easy to forget. It is easy to become consumed on the one hand with your own press. Killing it. Thank you very much. It is equally easy to become in despair over intense criticism. Forgetting what God says about you. It is so easy to see in other people, so hard to see in ourselves. Jesus says, if you make it your aim to please other people, you are going to miss. Paul would say the same thing, himself, a former religious leader of the Jews. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. You have to get the dichotomy. There's not a both end. I'm a pretty both end kind of guy. Generally, I can see that we can find win-win situations. When it comes to your goal, your aim, who am I going to please? Jesus, Paul, make it really clear. Aim, focus on what is pleasing to your father and don't worry about the rest. It matters, it will play into things, but at the end of the day, your value, your worth, your identity is found in who he says you are. And at the end of the day, you and I all want to hear the same thing. We want to live, we need to live for an audience of one so we can hear the Father say what we have been living for our whole lives. Matthew chapter 25 verse 21, his master replied, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. That's what I'm living for, and I needed to be reminded of that recently. That's what it's about, and I'm gonna keep living, leading, and loving that direction. Jesus' final comments to these religious leaders must have cut deep because he tells them that even their own hero, Moses, is not gonna be the one that's gonna champion them in judgment someday. Instead, he's gonna sit in judgment about them. They have made much of the law that God used him to give to the people And what does Paul say about the law in general? Romans chapter three, verse 20, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. This is a group of people who are trying to make themselves feel as though they could be right with God. Their righteousness would be acceptable. Paul says in Romans three, no one is acceptable by keeping the law. The law simply shows our failures. They had missed it. And finally, Moses actually wrote about Jesus in their law. Deuteronomy chapter 18 talks about another prophet. I will raise up for them a prophet like you. So this is God talking to the people and he's talking about Moses. I'll raise up a prophet like Moses from among their fellow Israelites and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. He will be the perfect prophet. Look, I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. Man, for people who were literally staring at the book of Deuteronomy and just kept reading and missing who was standing right in front of them. Here's my prayer for us today. I don't know your story. I don't know how long you've been coming and sitting in this place. Actually, I know you couldn't have been here more than six weeks <laughs> for at least a while. I don't know what God is doing in your life or what has not been going on in your life, but I do know this. I would hate for you to be staring, to be this close to understanding who Jesus is and miss it because you were simply just reading right through it because there was something going on in your life that was keeping you from making that decision to follow Christ. Some of you, many of you have put your faith in Christ and you're still faithing in him, believing him every day, walking with him, always with failures and sin along the way. But you are definitely, you understand him to be the Messiah he came to be. Can I ask you to do this? We're going to pray and and like I do every week, I'm going to give everyone the opportunity to respond to the gospel. But if you've already made that decision, would you do this, especially today? Would you think about someone in your relational world who hasn't? Someone that your heart breaks for, someone that you deeply want to see around the throne of God someday in heaven. And when I'm praying and giving people who are here and online and out in the pavilion the opportunity to respond, would you just be praying that God would be doing a work in their lives that soon they would respond to? And who knows how God might want to use you in that process? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today as a people who have, again, the incredible privilege of having your word, your revelation, the creator of the universe, pulling back the curtain and letting us know who you are. We we can easily take the Bible for granted as though it's just something we've been around our whole lives. Help us not to do that because as we read, it's the very words of life. And so I pray today that this week would we go out renewed, would we go out with a a greater sense of understanding and recognition that you are who you say you are, that you are this God who has come to give us life eternal if we would respond in faith, if we'd respond in repentance. And God, give us the grace this week to be these people who are living out your identity, living out what you say about us, not trying to please others around us. If you're here today and you've never responded to this amazing news of the gospel, you can. It begins by A, admitting that you're a sinner who needs a savior. Admitting that you have lived a life in a way that is not acceptable to God. And and I think you knew it before you walked in the building that if you stand before him someday, uh, there's gonna be a lot of sweat from your forehead. And, And when you admit that, every single human being is in the same exact spot. B, believe. Believe, though, that what Jesus came to do, believe he's the only savior available. Believe that what he has done in your place at the cross and what he did at the empty tomb, he provided a way for you to be right, provided a way for you to stand before God, not judge like we looked at last week, not judge on what you've done, but simply judge because of your name is in the other book, the book of life, because you put your faith in Christ. See is choose. Choose today to say, Jesus, I, I do put my faith in who you are, my confidence. I have nowhere else to stand and I want to live my life simply following after you. That, that is the right response to the gospel and I pray if you've never made that decision yet, would you make it today, even before you leave? Father, this week, help us to be a people who do and live the way John the baptizer did that we are convinced that you are the Messiah and we live to make you known. We love you and we pray in Jesus' great name, amen.